Good morning, Woodland Hills. We are wrapping up 2012. Uh, it's been a good year uh, for some. For some, it's maybe been a terrible year, but for every good thing that happened this year, let's give God the glory for it. And for all the crap, we'll just blame somebody else. Uh, but God gets the credit. That's uh, our policy around here. Hey, uh, we got a lot to be thankful for. I mean, uh, the Mayans turned out we're wrong, and, and we dodged a bullet. Man, I know some of you were really sweating uh, that one out, but whew, turns out it wasn't the end of the world, so far as I can tell. Um, so that, that, that's good. Now, the message that I'm going to be bringing this last Sunday of 2012 uh, is not the message I had planned on bringing. Uh, on Monday, um, I always sit down with uh, some folks, and we talk about uh, you know, this upcoming message, and then I have all week to kind of have it percolate and things like that. And um, th- this time, um, the stuff we planned on talking about on Monday is not at all what I'm going to be talking about uh, this morning. What happened was, uh, there's an event that happened this week that just gripped me, it got under my skin, got into my heart, uh, and I could not shake it. When I went to prepare the message for this week, um, this event was still there. I was, and it felt duplicitous for me to try to pour into a message and be passionate about that message when this is what's really gripping my heart and mind. And so I just interpreted that to mean that God wanted me to talk about this event. It turns out that this, uh, it's kind of appropriate, I think, that we're ending the year on this message because this event that happened this week really embodies, incarnates what, I, what is, I, I think, the most distinctive aspect of, of Woodland Hills Church, what we stand for, what we believe. If someone were to ask me, just give in one word the most distinctive aspect of Woodland Hills Church, I would say just instinctively, without having to think about it, well, we believe that God looks like Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he reigns over looks like Jesus. That, that um, the cross defines God to the core of his being, the Self-sacrificial love revealed in the cross defines God at the core of his being and it's to define us, uh, how we're to live, to reflect that kind of love. And this event that I'm going to be talking about this morning uh, just embodies this message in the most powerful, poignant, and practical way. Um, and so we're, we're, it's good for us to, I think, take a fresh look at this foundational belief, this conviction of ours, which is not widely shared uh, and, and to take a fresh look at it in light of this event um, as we're wrapping up this year. I, I'll read a passage that we read with some frequency here. It's probably one of the most frequent passages we talk about precisely because it so, uh, so captures this conviction of ours. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Oh, yes. I, I go back. I, I should mention the title of this. Uh, the, the event I'm going to be talking about, it, it, it involves a letter that was written uh, by a mother, her name's Jessica, to her four-year-old son, Henry. And so I'm entitling this message, A Letter to Henry. And the passage I want to read is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The author says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, which just refers to the last epoch of world history, that's the one that we're in, In his last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation, the Greek word there is character, means imprint um, or embodiment, the exact representation of God's being, and the word there is hypostasis, which means essence. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, gracious Father, um, I have a, just a special sense about this message and, and what you want to do in it and through it. It just feels huge to me, uh, way beyond what my words could possibly uh, communicate. And so, God, I want to just surrender my words to you and ask God that you infuse them with your kingdom authority and power to write into our hearts and minds, everybody in this auditorium, everyone listening through the podcast, our pod, our pod congregation, uh, God, and those who are watching television. I pray, God, you open our hearts and minds to receive your word and infuse this word with your authority to build your kingdom, to give us a uh, 
clearer picture of you and all of your beauty than we've ever had before, and a clearer understanding of the life that we're to live, clearer than we've ever had before, and, and, and light a fire in us to proclaim your beauty and to live your beauty towards all people at all times, especially our, our enemies. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 So the author here is drawing a sort of contrast between the revelation of God in times past and the revelation that we have in the Son. S-O-N, the Son of God. In times past, God spoke in various ways through different prophets at different times, but now the author says God's speaking to us through His own Son, and that has the connotation, understand the concept of Son of God in the New Testament, has the connotation of He's now coming in person. Before it was mediated through prophets and various things, but now God in his own son, in his own representation, as a human, he's come to us. So now we're getting it right from him, himself. And while in the past they had reflections of God's glory, some saw it more than others, they could see something of God's glory, now we have the son who is the radiance of God's glory. It's an interesting combination of words because radiance and glory are very similar. They both kind of denote shininess. And he, so he's the radiance of God's glory. That he's the, he's the shininess of God's shining. He's the very glory of God's glory. When God is put on display in all of his beauty, he looks like Jesus. And he's had glimpses of that in the past, but now we have the sun himself, the very shininess of the shining. And the sun is the exact representation of God's being. Exact representation. In the past, they had some representations. They had an approximation uh, more or less, of what God is like. Uh, but now we know exactly what God is like. He's the exact imprint, the exact stamp, or the exact embodiment of what God is like. Exactly. That's why Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show, show us the Father? This is it. Exactly what God is like. And in the past, they saw God in, his, in, in, in terms of how he appeared to us, but now in the sun, we see exactly what God is like down to his very hypostasis, down to his very essence, the core of his being. So the author is saying in as strong as terms as, as language uh, is capable of, he's saying when we look to the sun, we are seeing exactly what God is like all the way to the core of his being. And what Jesus was about is all summarized on the cross. Everything Jesus was about is culminated on the cross where we see the most unambiguous, clearest, most profound, most powerful display of, of God's self-sacrificial love. This is who God is. When, when the, when, when in 1 John it defines God as love. He says God is love, and then he defines love by pointing us to the cross. In 1 John 3.16, God is in his very being, in his eternal essence, the kind of love that's displayed on the cross. When God became a human being, and for our sakes, gave himself up on the cross. God is that kind of love, that infinitely intense kind of love. Down to the core of his being, the Son reveals God. And the most foundational conviction of us here at Woodland Hills Church is that everything hangs on holding on to that. It's the foundation for everything. Um, Jesus doesn't reveal part of what God's like. He reveals all of what God is like. And so the revelation of God that we have in the Son trumps everything else. That's why Jesus said, my testimony in John 5, my testimony is weightier than John. Even though John is the greatest of all the prophets who preceded me, my testimony is weightier than, than his, and therefore weightier than everyone who preceded me. To know what God is like, we're to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and, and Christ alone. And never should we compromise the beauty of that revelation by fusing it from, with pictures of God from any other source. Jesus, the fullness of God, dwelt in him. He's fully and exactly what God is like. We here think that this is, is, is absolutely the foundation for everything. And if you've been here for any length of time, this is old information to you. They'll receive it in a fresh way because every time you receive it, it can go a little deeper and become more part of your identity. But you've heard it before. But if, if you're new here, if you're visiting or are kind of a more recent attender to Woodland, um, this maybe is, in fact, is probably going to be quite new to you. And what I'm going to say right now is certainly going to be new to you, and it may confront some things you believe. Uh, it may challenge some things you believe, and I just encourage you to hear me out. 
Um, and at the end of the message, if you conclude that I'm off my rocker, fine. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be the first, but, but hear me out. So here's the thing. Everything hangs, we believe, everything hangs on a picture of God. How you view God, that is the most important fact between your two ears. It's the most important fact of everything you believe. What is your picture of God? When you hear the word God, what comes to mind? And see, for most people, it's not Jesus Christ. It's not the cross. It ought to be, but for most people, it's not. It's usually a conglomeration just kind of spun together a, a smorgasbord of different images of God that they got from different sources. Um, but see, your picture of God determines your love for God. You, your, your love for God can never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. Uh, how you understand God, how you understand yourself, how you understand others, how you understand life, it all depends on your picture of God. Your picture of God frames everything. Whether you live for God out of a fear-based kind of motivation or whether you live for God out of a joy, joyful love, it depends on your picture of God. Um, whether you look at other people with eyes of hope or whether you look at people, most of whom are fated already and sealed for destruction, well, it depends on your picture of God. The picture of God frames all of your theology. I think even your love, the love you have for yourself, the love you have for others, how much life you get from God versus how much you try to get from your appearance or your achievements, whatever, it all depends on your picture of God. And how you frame tragedies, how you understand tragedies and suffering and disasters, well, that completely depends on your picture of God. Uh, people sometimes think that theology is sort of an ivory tower thing, and all too often it is an egghead, ivory tower thing that has nothing to do with reality. But sometimes the rubber hits the road. And, and when it comes to how you interpret suffering and evil and things like that, well, now theology becomes very, very important. This was really driven home to me this week. This isn't the event I'm talking about, but uh, someone sent me an, an article that was written by uh, Lawrence Krauss uh, for the CNN uh, online magazine. And it was called, Why Do We as a Nation Grieve with God? And I, it's the kind of essay that I think would tick most Christians off, but I honestly thought it was profoundly insightful, even though he's writing from an atheistic point of view. Uh, he starts by taking offense at something that President Obama said in the memorial service for the 20 kids who were killed in the Newtown Massacre uh, several weeks ago. President Obama there said that, um, quotes Jesus, when he, Jesus says, let the little children come unto me, and then the president said, God has called the children home. And I think the president meant that with the sincerest and purest of intentions and to comfort people. And I'm not quite sure what he meant by that, but Krauss took him to mean that God was somehow involved in this event, and this was God's way of taking the children home. And that's what, it's, on the surface, that is what it would seem to be saying. And see, that, that goes in line. It's part of, of a, a cultural phenomenon that we have here, and this is what Krauss is tapping into in this essay, that in the face of tragedy, well, he's wondering why is it when, when tragedy happens, people turn to the clergy or to rabbis as though they knew anything, when what they usually get is are a bunch of cliches. Because the fact of the matter is, is that both inside the church and outside the church, uh, people tend to recite cliches in response uh, to terrible tragedies. We hear things like, God has brought them home. Uh, God's timing is always the right timing. God knows what he's doing. God is still on his throne. So God is somehow orchestrating all of this. And nothing happens by accident, right? Nothing happens by chance, not in the providence of God. Uh, there's a reason for everything. Everything has a purpose and so on and so on and so on. And see, all those cliches embody uh, a kind of theology. I don't think most people think about it, but, but embedded in that is the idea that God is somehow orchestrating everything. Everything's going according to plan. I think people recite these cliches because when they feel insecure, they want to be told everything's, you know, everything's going exactly as God wants it to go. But the implications of that are rather catastrophic because it means then that God is involved in all of the world's most uh, terrible tragedies. Uh, Krauss asked the question, I think it's a good question, how can you worship, I mean, it, it, it's odd that you go to try to find comfort in the God who caused the tragedy that you're needing comfort from. Why, why, why? He's puzzled by that. And how can you worship a God who is uh, killing kids to bring them home? Um, how, how do you worship a God who is involved in all of the most cataclysmic events uh, in history? 
And if you think about it, it really, I can understand his grievance over this. I mean, think about this for a moment. If God was somehow involved, mysteriously involved in this, and this is all his plan, you know, is somehow working everything out, and these 20 kids get killed. Well, that means you have to believe then that that madman who had the military rifle, he killed the exact right number of kids. It was all according to plan. In fact, he killed the exact right kids. So you have to envision God mysteriously working through this deranged person uh, and, and causing him to go into one room but not another because these are the kids that are slotted to come home, not those other kids. And you have to see God working mysteriously in, the, in this gunner so that he notices one child uh, but then uh, overlooks a different child. And so just the right number of kids get killed and just the right kids get killed with just the right number of bullets. It's all according to plan. And Krauss understandably is saying, what kind of God is that? And, and since you have to, you know, God's all good, right? And so his plans are all good. And if this is part of his plan, then this is good. And so you have to say that it was good that these 20 children, these, specifically these 20 children got killed. It was good. And therefore, you have to accept that it, was, it would have been bad if one less child would have died. That would have been bad. God would be less glorified or the universe would be less beautiful or something if, if one child had been spared. And then you have to apply this to every child that was killed throughout history. Think about it. And every person that was killed throughout history. Um, you know, the, it was somehow good that approximately one million children under the age of five were gassed in, in the Holocaust. It was somehow good. And therefore, we have to say it would have been bad. It would have been less God-glorifying. It would have been made the universe less beautiful. If one child had been spared, if one less child had been gassed in Auschwitz, well, that would have been a bad thing. God would be less glorified. And now you can begin to understand how someone like Krauss, and I'm sympathetic to him here, i got to confess, how, how, how they're puzzled by this and, and aggravated by this and, and, and are asking the question, how do you call a God who is doing that? Who calls it good that a million children would be gassed or that a school full of kids would be massacred? How do you call a God like that good or beautiful or just? And how can you say that it would, if there's one less child who had been raped and killed and tortured in all of history, well, the universe would be less beautiful and God would be less glorified. Um, Krauss, understandably, unfortunately, like so many people, Krauss assumes that this is what it means to believe in God. You have to believe that everything's going according to a blueprint. I call this the blueprint worldview. Everything unfolds according to a divine blueprint. And, and unfortunately, Krauss assumes, as so many assume, that this is what it means to believe in God. He's not aware of a different way of looking at things. And so it's not surprising he, in this essay, says, seems to me that in the face of tragedies like we have at Newtown, this is a good occasion to begin to question belief in all deities, he says. I think it's a good occasion to question a belief in certain kinds of deities, like the kind of deity who is the puppeteer working behind the scenes and everything's according to, going according to his decree. And so it's no wonder, I don't think, that, that some people like Krauss feel a moral obligation, and it's actually praiseworthy, they, they, they're laudable, they have a, feel a moral obligation to reject that God. But how different the God who's revealed in Jesus is. How radically different. As I said last week, the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ is the opposite of the Zeus sort of deities that human beings have always believed in throughout history and that we've always feared throughout history. Uh, the, the, the God who's revealed in, in Jesus has a totally different kind of character than the Zeus gods that we've believed in, the deterministic, controlling gods. The God who's revealed in Jesus reveals a different, totally different kind of power because, as I said last week, and this is what the Christmas story is all about, the power that's revealed in, in Christ is reveals that God, God's power is the power of the manger and the power of the foolishness of the cross. God's power is the power of self-sacrificial love. It's not this domineering, controlling, manipulating sort of power that humans maybe would do if we were God. No, this God's power is his willingness to lay down his life, his willingness to get low, to become a cute little baby, his willingness to wash the feet of his disciples, even though he knows they're going to betray him within hours. And the beauty of that character is his power. How different is the God revealed in Jesus and how important it is that we trust that God really is this beautiful. Jesus isn't revealing part of what God is like. He reveals the fullness of what God is like. So here's what happened this week. I've recently been in contact with a beautiful couple, uh, Jessica 
and Ian, and they're podrishners of ours now. I love the stories I hear from our podrishners. About two years ago, they came in contact with uh, my book, Is God to Blame? And that's what started the process of, of uh, changing their theology. They started then listening to the podcast. Jessica tells me that they become podcast junkies. They're always just listening to the podcast. And uh, then they got on my Renew website and learned some more about the health theology. And they've been then reading some other books. And as we're seeing happening with increasing frequency, um, it, it, it just revolutionized their theology. Their picture of God radically changed. Their understanding of, of what they're called to be radically changed. Their understanding of the kingdom radically changed. Like most Christians, Jessica and Ian had assumed, this assumed, like Krauss assumes, that what it means to believe in God is that you believe that everything is going according to his plan, that he's, he, it's all what he's ordained. And now they had a totally different way of looking at God and his kingdom and what life's all about as a result of this ministry here. And this is what we stand for more than anything else. They came to understand that, that, that God looks like Jesus, and he, he's not a God who wills evil in any sense of the word. He doesn't ordain evil. He doesn't control the, the evildoers to bring about evil. God is radically opposed to evil, and he fights, he defeats evil with the power of a self-sacrificial love revealed on Calvary. And they came to see that, that the, all evil originates in wills other than God, whether human or angelic. Now, Jessica and Ian are parents of, of this beautiful young four-year-old boy named Henry. This is an adorable young, young kid. Last September, they began to notice that, that um, uh, Henry was not being himself. Uh, he was listless, tired all the time. Uh, and then he began to have tremors. And they took him to the doctor and there uh, confronted every parent's worst nightmare uh, because they learned that Henry had a massive brain tumor. Um, and the doctor said there's nothing they can do uh, for him. He has months to live. Worst, worst nightmare if any parent would ever want to encounter. Uh, I, I'd like us to get to know Henry a little bit and get to know Jessica a little bit. And so here's a story that was put on the news. Um, uh, a local news station, they live in Atlanta, and it just a little story on Henry. I'd like us to watch it. Halloween has come and gone, but it's such a magical night of the year for so many kids, and no less so for one four-year-old Metro Atlanta boy, Henry Kelly. His family is working to ensure that the upcoming holidays are absolutely perfect, because for Henry, they will likely be his last. Here's our Jay Watson. What's the fun of painting a pumpkin if you can't paint yourself? Happy Halloween! He's the cutest Buzz Lightyear this side of the Mississippi. Henry soaks up every minute of the Halloween party at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Then it's back to his room and on to the next project, the next holiday. A Christmas tree. Each holiday is extremely important to us in this situation. Just last month, Henry's parents took him to the hospital for trembling and fatigue. And we hoped that maybe it was a vitamin deficiency or maybe he was getting MS or... Um, you never ever think it's your child that has a massive brain tumor. What do we work, The peanut tumors are extremely rare and the, I guess the S peanut tumors, there's only six to 10 in the U.S. every year that get diagnosed with this. One terrifyingly short month after the diagnosis, there is nothing more to be done. Henry is going home for hospice care. (laughs) Which makes this family Christmas tree imprinted with Henry's tiny feet and hands so important. Every holiday, takes on a brand new meaning. But I want to make every minute as, as fun, as special, as, as normal for a four-year-old as it can be, but yet as fun as it can be. Henry is proving himself a teacher to his mother, even now. We were throwing pennies in the pond. I said, you're supposed to make a wish before you throw the penny in the pond. What do you wish for? If you could do anything in the world right now, what it would be? He said, this. And it was the most amazing lesson to me that just, you know, enjoying the moment with him and just slowing down and saying, there's joy and peace because right now my little boy is throwing pennies in the pond with me. There is no more searching for a cure, no more bargaining for time, but there is a sense of hope that comes from faith. 
We believe that um, Jesus' heart is for us and for Henry and for healing and for restoration. Um, we may not see that on this side of glory, but we'll still be with him in a short amount of time for forever. You can, I'm sure, appreciate why this got under my skin, <laughs> why I couldn't shake it. Jessica and Ian prayed with their friends, prayed for healing uh, passionately, but they also had to prepare for his death. And that's appropriate uh, to do both. There's no contradiction there. <coughs> Unfortunately, since their theology got blown up two years ago, uh, they have not felt at home in their, their churches in their area all the pastors they knew would have told them that this is God taking Henry home. This is all part of God's plan. You have to accept this is coming from the hand of, of, of God. And they didn't want that at his memorial service. In fact, they wanted to use Henry's death as an occasion to um, uh, show their friends a different way of thinking about this, a different way of framing all this. And so they emailed me and asked, since they've been pod for two years, would I offer some a kingdom perspective on Henry's death. And the thing is, I had felt specifically called 20 years ago, right before Woodland Hill started, that I, I'm not to do funerals or weddings. I, you know, some, a lot of you folks have asked me, and I really feel called not to do that. Uh, I, I, that that'd be all I'd be doing if, if that is what, what I did. And I feel, felt like God was saying no. Uh, but on this one, I felt like I was supposed to say yes. Um, in fact, I, I sensed from the first time I talked to Jessica, I sensed that God wanted to use this tragedy to impact a lot of people with the truth about his beautiful character. And, uh, and Jessica feels the same way. That's why she gave permission to talk about this um, on, my, on my website and then talk about this at this service. And she wants the message to get out. Um, she feels like this is one of the good things that God wants to bring out of this tragedy. She wrote a letter to Henry that I'd like to read. Uh, the day he died, Jessica wrote this letter. Um, she's an incredible writer. And there's just so much wisdom packed into this letter. And so uh, I, follow me here as I read this. Uh, she says, Our precious Henry, several years ago, we were living in a tiny apartment. Daddy was at work, and I took a test. I'd taken a pregnancy test before, but this was different. This one showed two lines. At that moment, I was struck by the symbolism, a line for me and a line representing the life I was now responsible for, the life I cherish and enjoy the rest of my days. That was my plan. I believe it was God's plan, too. Enjoying your first two years was more, more everything than your dad and I thought it would be, more difficult, more rewarding, more painful, more joyful, more tiring and more exhilarating than we ever suspected parenthood would be. Your sweet, crackling laugh always compelled us to laugh along. Your big blue eyes could change our made-up minds. We were continuously blown away by your creativity, industriousness, intelligence, and coordination. We speculated that you'd be an engineer or a surgeon or do something to maximize your incredible potential. That was our plan. We believe it was God's plan, too. When Mary, who is their second-born uh, daughter, when Mary came along, we so enjoyed seeing the two of you interact. Your gentle hugs and kisses, the way you'd giggle and chase each other. Even your single word arguments over whether a particular food was tasty or wummy. Her look of adoration stuck from the moment she met you. And when you nicknamed her your best friend, Miwi, we knew you, would, you two would enjoy a lifelong friendship. That was our plan. We believe it was God's plan, too. The year preceding your Earthly death was difficult. We tried and tried, but couldn't understand the challenges you faced and presented. We had no knowledge of this vicious disease, but learned about grace and forgiveness, patience, and perseverance during this time. We still giggled, still played, still worked, but it wasn't until your body began to show outward signs that we began to grasp the source of affliction. When we learned of your brain tumor, we prayed. Thousands prayed. We demanded in prayer. We begged in prayer. We took authority in prayer. We took personal inventories and confessed our shortcomings in prayer. We gathered with groups in prayer. And we wept, we wept silently alone in prayer. We did everything we could, everything we could think of to strengthen our prayers. Prayers for a miraculous healing. A miraculous healing, healing was our plan. And we believe that once you became sick, it became God's plan too. 
So many are quick to sign God's name to your vicious disease, to your suffering, to your death. In the Old Testament, Job attributed his suffering to God too. But after God confronted Job on his lack of understanding about the complexity of the universe, Job repented, admitting he'd spoken of things he did not know. Your dad and I also do not know. We do not know why it was that you suffered and died so young. We don't know why the prayers of thousands did not prevail. We just do not know. Some things we do know. We know there's there's much going on behind the scenes of this fallen world. A world tremendously influenced by God's powerful adversary. We know that spiritual warfare invades our lives and often leaves devastation in its wake. We also know, according to Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. We know that this exact representation of God, Jesus Christ, came to give life and life more abundantly. So we know that your pain, your death, it did not come from God, but from an evil place. And we know one most crucial thing. We know how to fight back. We will fight back with surrender. We choose to surrender the anger and the despair and defeat that we feel. We lay these feelings at the feet of Jesus to whom the battle belongs. Folks, there's such wisdom in that right there. We know how he fought for us with complete self-sacrifice. In fact, that sacrifice is our assurance that we'll see you again. So we will, we will instead strive to use our energies to be generous to those who could never repay, to be gentle to those who don't make it easy, to pour into the lives of those who hurt, and to, one act at a time, spread the liberating love of Christ. We'll fail at times, but we pledge to live this way, to honor you, Henry, and to honor the one who now gently holds your small hand. That's our plan. Living a life that loves sacrificially, well, as always God's plan too. Sweet boy, we miss you with every breath, but we'll all be together before you know it, celebrating the ultimate victory of love. Until then, precious one, all our love, mom and dad. Beautiful letter. And we have, by the way, copies of, amen. It's a beautiful letter. Amen. Good job, Jessica. I, I just sensed that, in fact, I, when, I, when I spoke, first spoke with Jessica, I, uh, having read this letter, I just had a sense that God wants to somehow use this event uh, to, to make his name known, the beauty of his character known, and I, 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 that God wants to use her as a, sort of a megaphone to do it. And so I asked her, I said, have you ever you know, done anything in terms of communication, uh, thought of a vocation, or had a passion to write, or, or to, to teach, or, or anything like that? Because I just had this sense about you. And it turns out she was, two years ago, I mean, her passion is to be a writer. And she was writing a novel, had four chapters done until two years ago when her theology got blown up. And those four chapters were steeped in her old theology, so she just stopped writing. But now she's sensing the need to start over again, but with a new perspective. And I said, bingo. Okay, that's, there's a, you've got a story that you're to tell and to put God's love on display by doing it. See, it, it, it's so important. What do we, what's your picture of God? How do you view God's character? How do you understand God's plan? So much depends on this. This isn't, this isn't ivory tower stuff. This is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, do you think that God's plan is, is a decree that's invariant and unchangeable? Do you think that, that history just unfolds according to some script that was written uh, an eternity ago? Or, or do you believe that God's plan is a plan? And, and that what um, human beings choose and what angels choose can alter that to some degree? Jessica and Ian have come to the conclusion that the second one is true. That God, God's plan is beautiful and good, always beautiful, life-affirming and good. But human beings and angels have got free will, and we can to some degree, but we either agree with God or we work at cross-purposes with God. And the origin of all evil comes from angelic beings and humans choosing the second, choosing to work at cross-purposes with God. Because the Scripture tells us over and over again that, that we can thwart, to some degree, thwart the will of God. We can thwart the plan of God. Luke 7 says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejected God's uh, uh, purpose for themselves. God had a purpose for them, and it was good and beautiful. But we're, we have the ability to either accept that or reject it. And evil arises when we reject it. 
See, God does not decree evil. God does not decree sin. God doesn't decree that little kids get tumors. God doesn't decree that, that school, schools full of children get massacred. No, no, God is always good and his plans are always good. God is always beautiful and his plans are always beautiful. God is always loving and his plans are always loving. God is always life-affirming and his plans are always life-affirming. And whatever is not in accord with that comes from, as Jessica said, an evil place. And it's just so tragic when people, when, when people assume that God is behind the tragedies and the evil that takes place, well then, invariably, God's character gets, gets assassinated. Uh, it gets tainted because it's mixed up with all of that. And so then, instead of God's beauty drawing people to himself, people like Lawrence Krauss and so many others are repelled by the thought of submitting to that God. So I offered, I said yes to giving some reflections on, on Henry's death. I, I At Renew, on my website, I've been doing this new thing where a friend taught me how to use the iPhone uh, uh, recorder. And, and, um, and so we, we have a setup where I, uh, instead of writing blogs, I sometimes will just talk into this little iPhone and record a blog, and then uh, it gets uploaded uh, to the website. I, of course, didn't put this together. I wouldn't know how to do it, but I have friends, and so they, they've set it all for me. I just have to push a button, and they take care of the rest. But I, that's how I did this reflection on, on Henry's death. I just sat down in my office and, and, uh, and just talked. And there's no way I can capture that moment again. I can't possibly reproduce it. And so I thought what I'd do is, even though it's a little bit weird, uh, but I'm gonna, I, I wanna show that, that video. Um, it so embodies what, what this church is all about. Reflections on, on Henry's life and death. Hello, Jessica and Ian. Um, I want you to know that my heart goes out to you uh, over the loss of your precious Henry. I, I can't imagine what that's like to go through that. Um, I don't have words other than to say that my heart goes out to you. Um, and I want you to know that I'm, I'm really deeply honored that you would invite me to offer some reflections on his life, his short life, and his untimely death. I obviously didn't have the privilege of knowing Henry, but just from what you've written uh, on Facebook and that newscast, um, it's obvious, obvious to everyone that he was a uh, precious and perfectly adorable little child, just beautiful. I was so moved by that story um, that Jessica told about uh, when she was at the pond, uh, at Wishing Pond, and she asked uh, Henry, if you could have anything you wanted, if you could do anything you wanted, what would you wish for? The whole world, if you could do anything, what would you wish for? And his response was, this. <laughs> that is it's just beautiful. Um, this mom right here, this is what I... I could not wish for anything more than this. There is a lifetime of wisdom uh, in uh, that little statement. I, I think it's beautiful the way that you allowed Henry to, the last two months of his life, to teach you so much. That's uh, just, that's beautiful. He had so much to share. What you two have been through is something that parents should never have to go through. And what you two have been through is something that God wouldn't want any parents to ever go through. Because what you two have been through is, is, is part of a, a creation that's not the creation that God originally intended. I'm so glad, in the midst of your grief, I, I, I take comfort in knowing that you know the God of unfathomable love revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, I'm happy that you know that God is always for you and never against you. I'm so happy that you know that this wasn't God's perfect plan for your life and that he didn't orchestrate Henry's death. It is so tragic, but um, I've known uh, quite a few people who, uh, right when they need God the most, in the midst of a tragedy, they push God away because they were told that God was behind, somehow behind the death of their child or the death of their spouse or, or their loved one. And it's just tragic. That's a pervasive teaching, been there throughout church history. St. Augustine, probably the most influential uh, teacher in, in all of history in, in the church, uh, he said that when a child dies, it's either because uh, God was punishing the child or because God was punishing the, the parents, punishing the child for original sin or punishing the parents for some sin. And I don't think we can ever overestimate the amount of pain that that has caused parents throughout history. And so I'm glad that you have not had to have your sorrow compounded by having to deal with that. Because you know that God 
is the giver of life. He's never the taker of life. He's the guy that looks like Jesus Christ. Um, you know that because of human rebellion, uh, this entire world has been oppressed by Satan and other fallen principalities and powers, and that nature's been corrupted by the thief who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Um, we still see the glory of God in all of nature, of course. You see the glory of God and the awesomeness of the stars, but when you look around this world, you see a whole lot that is not at all like God. You see violence permeating all of creation, and there's destruction and decay, um, death that permeates all of nature. It's not the world that God originally wanted. Paul says the entire creation has been sub subjected to futility and decay, and the entire creation groans like a woman in labor pains, uh, longing for redemption. Everything in this world that is wrong and ugly, uh, that's about death and causes sorrow, it, it is... It's, it's not the will of, it's a result of wills other than God, the result of a creation that's been subjected to futility and decay and pollution by the principalities and powers. The Bible teaches that every good gift comes from the Father above. And everything that is not good ultimately is the will of or has been affected by wills other than God. Um, all that's beautiful, all that belongs to life, all that belongs to joy, ultimately that originates from God. But all that is about death and all that's ugly and all that causes sorrow well, it's ultimately it's been influenced, at least, by wills other than God, whether human uh, or angelic. We know that God looks like Jesus Christ, dying on the cross out of a love for a lost race of rebels, praying for our forgiveness with his last breath. That's what God looks like. And whatever doesn't conform to that beauty, that perfect love, is, is ultimately the result of wills other than God. It's natural in the face of tragedy for people to ask why. Why why Henry? Uh, why didn't our prayers uh, save him? And I, I was just blessed to see in Jessica's beautiful letter written to Henry um, the acknowledgement that, that that question, why, is unanswerable. But I was blessed to see that she understands that it's unanswerable, not because God's will or because God's character is so mysterious, uh, God's told us exactly what his will and character is like. And he, he does it in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's very essence. God, to the core of his being, looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the very people who crucified him, praying for forgiveness with their, his last breath. That's what God looks like. There's nothing mysterious about it. The question why is unanswerable, not because God is mysterious, but because he created a world for the purpose of love, and the price of love is free will. And so he creates a creation that's populated with free, free agents, human and angelic. And every choice that a free agent makes affects what comes to pass and causes ripple effects throughout history. And God must allow that and work around that, because if he were to revoke it, then free will really wouldn't be free. The question why is unanswerable because behind every event, there's a line of influences extending back to the beginning of time. It's the ripple effects, the result of all the ripple effects of choices ever made throughout history. So to understand the why of anything, including why Henry, and why didn't our prayers succeed when the prayers of others sometimes do succeed, well, to understand that question, we'd have to understand, we have to know every free decision made by humans and angels from the beginning of time. We can't know why, not because God's so mysterious, but because we live in an incomprehensibly vast, complex, war-torn creation. It's not the creation that God originally intended. We can't know why, but it's what we can know that makes all the difference. We can't know why this happens instead of that, but we can know that God looks like Jesus Christ. This is everything. God looks like Jesus Christ. And so God's not behind the death of precious little children. We can't know why, but we can know that God is perfect goodness, and God is the source of all that's good. And God is perfect beauty and the source of all that's beautiful. And God is perfect love and the source of, of, of all love. We can't know why, but we can know that God is infinitely wise. And so he's always at work to bring good out of evil. My, my prayer is that, that you work with God to do just that. We can't know why, but we can know that God is with us. In the midst of every tragedy, God is with us. And so I, I pray you know that God is with you. You're not alone. You're never going to be alone. He'll never leave you or forsake you.
And I pray you can feel the comfort of that and feel the strength of that. He's with you. He's on your side. We can't know why, but we can know. We must know. And I pray you can envision this, that God's love wins in the end. Love wins. And so know that there's coming a time when there'll be no more sorrow and no more heartache and no more death and no more destruction and no more violence and no more evil and no more separation from loved ones. And there's coming a time when to wipe away every tear from our eye and uh, uh, there'll, be no, there'll, there'll be no more warfare. It will have come to an end. Uh, we can't know why here and now, but you've got to know that when that time comes, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, um, you're going to see Henry running out to you with open arms. And you, we, we can't know why, but we can know that when that happens, when it's all brought together under the, the headship of Jesus Christ, and all wounds have been healed, and all things have been restored, and all has been made well, that, that we will then see that it will have been all worth it. Paul says that the sufferings of this present age, as unthinkable as they sometimes seem, they can't be compared to the glory which God has in store for those who love him. You'll see him again. That will be worth it. So, thank God for the four precious years you had with your beloved son. Uh, but no, God, God wants you, and I know Henry wants you, to now uh, go on and, and live fully, and to laugh Hardly, and to experience great joy, and to love passionately, and to advance God's kingdom. And the infinitely wise God, who is always bringing good out of evil, um, I, I believe, I'm confident that somehow God, this ingenious God, He never causes tragedy, but He all, He never causes tragedy for a purpose. But He always brings a beautiful purpose to tragedy. And one of the things I believe is going to bring out of this tragedy. Uh, is somehow to uh, use Henry to bring the good news of his true character to other people, maybe multitudes of other people, and I believe he wants to use you to do it. Uh, his life is a testimony and um, about the, the ingenious God who brings good out of evil, whose love and character is more beautiful than words can ever tell. Just Kenyon, I, I obviously don't know you well, but from all I can see, you're amazing people. And um, I want you to know it's truly been an honor to be invited to speak into your life and to reflect on Henry uh, in this, this, this tender moment. Uh, I pray you are held, feel held, feel comforted, and feel the strength of the everlasting, strong, infinite love of God around you at all times. And just know that it won't be long. It won't be long. And you'll be reunited, and then it will be well. It will be as God always intended it to be, and it'll be worth it. God bless you guys. Amen. Amen. Yes. I, I really believe God is... Some, a lot of people would never read a theology book will listen to that, and... Um, it embodies the the core of the message that we here at Wilderness Church stand for. It's it's our most distinctive conviction. The thing is that conviction is so rooted in the New Testament, so deeply rooted. The warfare worldview and all of that is so rooted in the New Testament, but it is frankly fairly rare in contemporary Christianity, which is so steeped in all these cliches. And uh, and so I feel more uh, fire than ever about. This, the calling and the commission that is on this church. It's because of this ministry here that Jessica and Ian were brought into this new under, understanding. And so many people push God away, as I said, when they need God the most because they have this framework of a God who's controlling it all. And we have a wonderful opportunity to share something different. And so I want to end 2012 by calling on us. If this is your spiritual body, I want to challenge us. This is our foundational conviction here. God looks like Jesus, and the kingdom looks like Jesus. And so I call on us to be a people who proclaim that message, how desperately people need to hear the good news of God's true character. 
And we do it by living. Let's recommit. At the end of 2012, going into 2013, can we commit to proclaiming God's character by how we live? By, by, by manifesting the beauty of God's self-sacrificial love in all of our interactions and in everything we do and think and say to and about people and put on display the beauty of that character. And then to proclaim this when, when, when folks we come in contact with are struggling or when we ourselves are struggling. Uh, we're, we're to be a group of people who don't run to the cliches and, and, and pile on cliches on people. But we can offer folks a different way of framing it. We don't know. We can say we don't know, but... Why we don't know is all important, because what we do know is Jesus. And if you know Jesus, and you know that him as the revelation of God, and you're an infinitely rich person, and you can work through these things in a way that's glorifying to God. Can we stand? I'm just going to close in prayer. As I do, I want to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, come up here and join with these folks. Maybe, I know from the first service, this activates some stuff. And, and folks, and maybe there's some, it's an opportunity to get some healing for stuff that needed healing. Um, whatever the issue may be, feel free to come up here as I, I end with just this, this commission. Uh, Abba, Father, as your people, we commit to going out, ending this year and going into this new year, to be a people who are, as you've called us to be, a light to the world uh, and uh, who are billboards of your true character. As your DNA runs through us, God, help us to be a people who, who manifest the beauty of Jesus Christ in all of our actions. And God, help us to be a people who are willing to offer our words to people who are hurting and suffering. Uh, God, in a, in, a, in a culture that has so tarnished your character, and so many assume that you're something more like Zeus than you are like Christ, help us to be a people who proclaim the good news in every way, shape, and form to everybody to spread the good news of your, your love, revealed on Calvary in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world and go Vikings.